0: Hey! Hey, how you doing? I'm great. All right, so here we are. It's
1: hallway chat episode 22. Yeah, it is hallway chat 22. We we double counted the 20, <laughs> so we're gonna try and correct that. It's a real r- Ricky Dick operation over here at hallway chat, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> this is this is what you say. It's projecting authenticity. That's how I would. Right, that's how I pitch it.
0: Right, right, right. right. All right. Well, I'm uh, Bijan and uh, Neil. All right. Excellent. Welcome back, everybody.
1: Yeah. Uh, it took us uh, – so we should start – we got a couple questions from last time, Bijan. Um, I, I, you know, we asked folks for a couple questions, things we could actually chat about this time instead of just us riffing on whatever showed up from Amazon uh, the week before, and, <laughs> and, uh, which is a lot of our hallway chat, just to be clear, is what technology we're trying. Um, so, you know, let's start there, and then we have a couple of yeah. things. Can I, can I just uh, offer one thing before we get into it? Please.
0: So Nabil and I talked before this and we talked about what we want to talk about topic wise, but we've not, I have no idea what he's going to say about any of these topics. There's no, right. We never aired it out. So I just want people to, are,
1: are just, you, are you, is this a disclaimer? Cause you're worried about what I'm going to say. No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I just want people to know how we <laughs> do kidding. it. Yeah. 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 So we, yeah, the, the, the behind the scenes is that we have about a uh, very, very, very short planning session of like 90 seconds, uh, <laughs> where we try and write some things down on a piece of paper, and then we hit record. So, um, so Semo asked, um, how do we, how does Spark specifically, uh, work with companies after the check is written? And um, I think he had the caveat in there uh, of something like, you know, obviously each partner, each investment is different, um, but just giving material. You know, exacting like this. This is what happens. Uh, you know, and so I, let's let's open up there. Let's open up with exactly
0: what we, what we do. John, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, what do
1: I do? Yeah, no, this is.
0: I thought this was a good question. I, I also think it's awesome that people are asking questions. And in this case, Semel Shah, we know him. Uh, but you know, people we don't know, we, we'd we'd love to hear people's ideas for topics for the next version, uh, episode of Hollywood Chat. Anyway, well, the way I do it and i am very clear with people entrepreneurs is that i basically say at this point uh maybe it's a geeky way of saying it but like i i i work best in a pull versus push kind of uh model so if a founder needs me i am there uh anytime you want me and uh if you don't need me it's okay if some time goes by and we don't talk i don't i'm not going to sit here and freak out like oh my god a week went by and we didn't talk um you know, I don't feel loved or, you know, what are you doing or send me a weekly activity report? Like I'm I'm not that type of investor. So like, if you need me, I'm here, I'm on demand. And if you don't, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Um, and so as a result that generally is like, sometimes I'll talk to a founder, you know, five or 15 times a week. And then sometimes it's, it's, uh, every other week on a regularly scheduled call because the founder thinks that's useful or, you know, it could be maybe once in between board meetings. Um, and it just depends on the company's life. I guess some specific examples of what Semmel's asking for, you know, I guess the longest board I was on since becoming an investor was Tumblr. I was on the board for almost seven years. So, you know, it's a wide range of things, everything from thinking about how to raise follow-on capital to how to help David think about scaling the company thinking about, uh, the business model. When should we develop a business model? Is this the year we should develop a business model or should we defer this year? Um, and then all the way to kind of helping him think through whether we should sell the company, you know? So, so that was the, it was the widest range. And I think in that relationship, it was, uh, I think we, we, I think we were partners. I mean, it was his company. He was the founder, but I, I think, uh, you know, in that case, I was an investor and board member, but I, I really think that I was, um, you know, uh, somebody that he and I, you know, we had a great relationship for how to run the company.
1: And, and did in that situation, did you guys develop a cadence? Did you have did in that specific one with David? Did you have standing calls and so on, or he just like no. it was Tuesday, it was ten p.m., and he was like, I was just thinking about X, and he and he just did a call.
0: Yeah, yeah, I get I'd get a text that would be like, <laughs> Hey, uh,
1: do you have a minute? And then it was like. <laughs> Okay, I got a minute. And, you know,
0: that was, that was how it went down.
1: Yeah. Um, my experience as a startup CEO, which is that I didn't really understand what you use a VC for. Like, I got that they're supposed to be there and they come to board meetings and I have to report to them and eventually they might be able to fire me or not or whatever. Like, and I, and I got that some people had better relationships than others and they were partners. But when to loop them in and how, I think I, I, think I grossly underutilized my boards as a as a CEO
0: was it was it because you did, you really didn't know or you were nervous about you know talking openly about what you're That's worried right. about I, or it was,
1: I, I think it, was, it is probably both like one is just like I don't know at what point am I overburdening the VC um, who now thinks like does this person not know how to run his company because he keeps looping me in on every tiny little thing um, it's it's like finding that on one side of the barbell versus you know, yeah, versus the, you know, the, you know, projecting confidence and trying to run the company and just, like, you know, uh, show up to the board and be like, everything's up and to the right, it's all good. Uh, it's that difference between using the person as a, like, trusted person and consigliere versus, hey, you want them to think well of you and, you know, ultimately you're being evaluated. And right. so, I, 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 so what I do as a kind of response to that and my own personality um, is, and I'll take, Postmates is a good example um, where we've seen the most kind of, you know, change in their relationship over the last several years with Bastion. Um, so there, you know, he, that's a business that's complex to run. It's running in a bunch of different directions all at once. And there's a bunch of strategic and business issues. So with him, I just have a, a standing call every two weeks that we have on the books. Um, so it is it is, you know, I'm certainly pull like, you know, he can pull me anytime he wants and, and contact But I try to put something in the books on a regular basis. And then the conversation I have with Bastion or any of the CEOs I talk to, and I I, do generally try and do this, have something on the books where there's an hour carved out of my um, calendar that is, and and the clear thing is it's at his disposal, not mine. So like, it's not there so he can show up and give me a report on what happened the previous week so I can make sure everything's quote unquote on track. It's not that. It's that so he knows there's an availability to talk through what's happening should he need to. And that means that, like, if he skips it or he doesn't call me, like, I don't need an excuse or a reason. Like, it's his time; it's not. It's not my time. Uh, and so, there are times when we don't do that call. Um, there are times when we do that call plus four other calls <laughs> that week when we're working through, especially things like fundraising or I'm helping out on uh, hiring a senior executive and recruiting and so on and so forth. Um, but that is the one thing I probably do that, that that maybe is different from what you do, which is I, I, I do. And I find, especially for first-time CEOs and young CEOs, it gives them – It just, they end up just, like, talking to the business, and you end up hearing, like, two or three little things that maybe wouldn't have come up in a different context uh, that then you can either offer advice on or then have some background on a month later when it, like, comes to fruition and blossoms into a crisis that they might be calling you on a Sunday afternoon about. Um, yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, the only other thing, I, as you were talking about that um, – that came to mind is that you really kind of have to, I think, get a feel as a founder about the VC that you're working with or VCs, because what Nabil and I are talking about, you could already tell there's a difference between him and I on this approach. And then if you put two other VCs in the room, they're going to have a a very distinct point of view. And I know some VCs that really freak the fuck out when they hear the, all the the stuff. stuff. (laughs) And, And, and then I think the knee jerk reaction is to then, just like we wouldn't treat every single founder the same, the knee-jerk reaction is to treat every VC the same, right? And and um and that's frustrating to so just like some VCs don't want to hear every single detail cuz they they freak out. Like the thing that gets my, you know, back of my neck kind of tingling is when you' are like everything's great. I know oh. the 10th engineer just left this month. I was going to fire him anyway. Like that <laughs> yeah. to me I'd rather hear, "Hey, we got a morale problem and, you know, I I got a couple ideas how I'm going to fix it, but we got a real morale problem. Like right. that to me is way more, uh, uh, you know, an interesting way to engage than, than, um, than to treat everyone the same. So
1: anyway, that, that's my own little that's, thing. That's good general advice anyway, which is like, I, I, I try and offer that advice up when we're doing, you know, for our portfolio investments, we're going out to fundraise again. And now, you know, we're working together. It's just like, it's just hiring another human. It's the same thing as hiring a CTO or VP of engineering or a sales, you know, lead. It's, it's each of them has a different management style. You have, you have different ways that you interact together. And it's really evaluating that, that person, which is another good reason why the like shotgun VC deals that get done in four or five days might feel like a way to optimize your time so that you can quote unquote, get back to working. But uh, it just feels like you're optimizing for the wrong thing. Like recruiting people to the board that are going to be helping to guide this company and going to have a very strong influence on the company it's part of the it is a very it's as important as getting a senior executive at least if not more you can fire a VP of engineering that doesn't work out Um, you can't let a board member go and so you should be interviewing like crazy Um, and you should just think about it that way and that's like what that's also I think back to what kind of relationship do you have and want with your board member I have I have some I have some relationships with founders that are that are really intense and all the time, and we have, it's, and and there are other ones that are just not that way, and both just as positive. It's just a different relationship, right? Because a different yeah, right. founder. You know, I was
0: thinking about that, you know, speed dating thing that's happening over the last, you know, many years, where founders want to get the financing done, lickety split, and get back to work, and uh, and you know, I was thinking about like, why is that happening? What's the dynamic? And and it all is because we're paying for the sins of of the prior generation of investors that took (laughs) up too much time. Like, like you could. I I was, my, my knee jerk on this several years ago was like, Oh, you know, this demo day unintended consequence was to create this fever for demo day. And, but it's not demo day. It's, it's that like, you know, VCs used to take and angel investors just take forever. And, and, and we've now evolved to kind of train entrepreneurs that like, that's a nightmare. Don't do that. Get it done. Get back to work. And, but now we've got the situation where we don't get to spend as much time with each other. And that's the, that, that's, that's unfortunate.
1: So if we're talking about what the advice is to how you think about bringing in, you know, a VC on board and partner, um, you know, similarly, one of the other things people sometimes optimize for, well, is price, right. And it's balanced against everything else, but you don't want to dilute more than you need to. and, And so on. And I'm curious what, what kind of conversations you're having with your portfolio companies in regards to um, price given the current market conditions where it seems like price is softening? Look, I think, uh, it, you know, optimizing for
0: price feels good short-term, but it never feels good long-term. I mean, you know, I mean, it seems so self-serving as a VC to say that, but I guess the, the part where I feel like I could say with a straight face is that most of what you and I do is early stage investing. So yeah. Most of the money comes in after our initial investment, so as a result, it's not that self-serving because you know you could say we want the people to come on later to pay a higher price. So, um, so I feel like I can say this with a straight face, but I I have I have really not seen great examples except for a few selection bias situations, you know, where optimizing for price was the right outcome. I, I just I just don't think it it's a durable answer, durable in the sense of through good times and in bad, like. The response is, oh, raise the high price. You can always raise the lower price later, mm. um, I, I think uh, is is a bit naive about what the HR issues are. You know, the new f- investor doesn't want to deal with presenting a down round and just would rather not do anything than like there's all this mess that I've seen where um, I, I, I just feel like going for that price over everything else is, is really suboptimal.
1: What about just to put a little more pressure on it or to point a little bit at it, like what about a situation where you're worried about a competitive market and there's, you know, there's another um, startup that might that you might be hearing is raising at a higher price right now or just close around at a higher price right now. And so you're worried about the optics of being, you know, the lesser valued of the company, you know, the two companies in the market.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's the short term feels good fix and doesn't feel good like two days later. I, I think that, you know, if your competitor raised a bigger round. And if they're truly performing better, that's the thing you got to worry about. If, if they're truly performing great, that's the piece that should keep you up at night. Not that they raise more money at a higher price. If 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 you're beating them and you have a better company, better performance, better people, better product, then like who gives a shit? Like I, I really believe that. And um, but it, but if it's really just code for they're actually performing better, <clears throat> then, then that's the thing. <laughs> That's the thing to worry about.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think um, you know, there was actually just an article in the information about about one of the offshoots of these kind of larger you know unicorn rounds. These kind of you know priced ahead of the curve rounds that some people have have pulled off in the last year, and some of the implications. Of it I thought was a really good article, and and it really points to the you know I think for founders a conversation a lot that I end up having is. You know, those founders, whether they're inside the portfolio or they're just friends outside the portfolio, is like, oh, I don't, I don't think I can, you know, the other guy's at a billion and I'm at 500, the other guy's at two and I'm at one, or I'm at 500 and I'm at 100. And like, that's going to hurt my recruiting. And I don't think that that's giving, first of all, I don't think it's giving hires enough credit for how they think about the business. Um, because I don't think they just look at the valuation. I think they look at the team that you're working with. I think they also look at upside. Like eventually, you know, they're, they're getting equity in this company, and there's a value to the growth of that equity. And if you're highly valued, then guess what happens at highly valued companies? It means you, you know, weigh cash comp over equity comp. And so by raising a really high value, what you end up doing is you, you may have raised a lot of cash, but you don't have as much cash as Google, but for a new employee, they're basically valuing you on cash comp alone because there's not a lot of value growth on your equity side because now you're some high-flying startup. So it actually can make, a, you know, it can make uh, recruiting senior employees harder, not easier, um, when you've raised.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I guess this is, you know, I'm just trying to think of a couple concrete examples just to maybe yeah. emphasize the point, but like. You can imagine, you know, for a while, Groupon had a screaming valuation in the private market. And it's not clear to me they got the best people to work there, even though the valuation is going up and up and up. I think people were mindful of like, is this sustainable? Is this durable?
1: Whatever. Yep. Um, and and, oh, my, and my, my previous company, you know, when I was at Singa, that, that was exactly the experience, was um, we hit a certain valuation threshold. And it was very interesting how when we got the round done, it felt really amazing but the senior executive conversations changed in tone and tenor, night and day. Um, it went from "Oh my God, one of the one of if not the fastest growing revenue startups in tech ever." Uh, so, like, what a crazy, crazy situation that's very singular. To "Oh, that valuation? Like, can you hold up that valuation? What's next year and the year after look like? What's the durability of this company? Is it hits Bit it became a very, very different conversation that, uh, I don't know if it would have played out differently, different ways, but like with those valuations, I would just say, come a bunch of other expectations and you don't get to skip the expectations. And so by, by jumping through, um, some set of little steps to say that you're ahead of yourself in valuation, you also, it also means that you're asking, you're going to get asked questions that maybe you're a little bit too early in your life cycle to really be able to answer. And that's the cycle you're not really ready for.
0: Right. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Look, yeah, look at the comp, uh, company that uh, I don't want to get specifics today, but I'm feeling <laughs> in a couple of weeks we could. Like, if you go out and do an IPO at a very high price, you have to live with that.
1: Yeah. You
0: know, yep. That's live- very true. We
1: should talk about that in a couple of weeks. Maybe <laughs> one or two. One or two always <laughs> Um. Uh, next question. Let's let's jump to question number two, right? Yeah. Uh, so Steve Kane, both of our, we've known him for years. Uh, he asked. I mean, how would you characterize what he asked? I mean, I, my headline of what he asked was once you read his exact question, I would characterize it differently. But do you have this question up there? I don't. Uh,
0: I felt bad. I sh- we should have this handy, but it was basically like, "Hey, did social media really change uh, the political landscape?" Uh, as we all thought with the Obama campaign, or was was President Obama a one off? Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, basically, does does social media really affect or change? I mean, I would even generalize it. Does social media really change the world, or are we all just bloviating? At the end of the day, it was more about. In his case, he was using Obama. Was it really just like Obama was a unique character, and in any environment, you know, that would have happened?
0: I mean, it's 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 uh, probably not going to be a surprise, but. A, I think social media's clearly changed the world. <laughs> and and I think I think even in the political world it's changed quite a bit. Like I I do. Both both for the positive and for potentially the negative. But I I think um the the uh, what Obama did was you know really show that using social media you can generate a real, you know, a, a movement, you know, as opposed to a number of just small wealthy donors and corporations financing your campaign. I mean, you know, the the I was pretty involved with the Obama uh, uh, campaign, and the amount of individual donors, as small check donors, was like unprecedented. Yeah, and and the 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 um, the organization obviously was was amazing, but that campaign's
1: social media strategy and execution was was fantastic. So, you know, I've heard this this question actually asked several different ways when we're talking about like. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter, or we're talking about uh, the Arab Spring, or, or you know, Obama elections. I, I I tend to come out on the positive side as well. I, I think the reason this question gets asked is because um, it's it's not such a singular cause and effect moment. So you know, we don't point to when, when you look at presidential elections and you look like the impact of the nineteen sixty Kennedy Nixon debates. Then you have like a before and an after. You have like Nixon came up. That wouldn't have happened in radio. Like that's a direct cause and effect, and then everybody believes. But if the if that had not happened, it's not like we would have been arguing now, today, twenty years later, that the advent of television had no impact on how politics is conducted and how elections are run. It's yeah. like that's it becomes patently obvious over a longer time frame. There will be di- there will be different presidents of the United States over the course of the next this election cycle and the next several election cycles because Twitter and Facebook and other social media companies exist. And and in like, I don't think I don't have personally any question about that. Now, what kind of candidates rise up because of that, I think is still, I mean, I might have my ideas. You might have your idea. Like that's still up for debate. I think, you know, the fullness of time will make that pretty obvious how it's impacting culture. Yeah.
0: I mean, I even think just on a, on a very utilitarian functional point of view, like, You know, you could watch a debate, you know, presidential debate, Democratic uh, primaries or Republican primaries, and just having this instant, always on real time town hall thing, like to do fact checking. Right. Like, you know, you you had this situation where now I'm going to get like really political. So like we we didn't talk. You can always scrub this in the edit if you want. But like even in like that whole post 9-11 thing where we went to war with Iraq and Powell's, you know, talking to the U.N. about these things like this was before social like really took off. Yeah, and you know all of the big media companies had a very hawkish rush to war attitude, like the New York Times. All these uh, entities did it, and we had a small number of voices dominating public opinion, right? Mm-hmm. And now, if you fast forward the tape to today with Black Lives Matter, like the reason why it feels radical, you know, radically different in contrast is that we're we're seeing the other side of it. We're seeing the truth. Like we're seeing the footage of the abusive police officers. We're seeing like, the facts, it's not like there's a point of view. We're seeing the actual photo or video in real time or moments after. Like, that's a
1: moment of truth. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, Neil Stevenson in Snow Crash. He talks about uh, this old sci-fi, you know, not sci-fi novel uh, from, I think, the early 90s, 91, 92, uh, you know, where he kind of first started propagating the idea of an idea virus, right? And, and that's really what you see, which is just like, look, it's not what the Obama administration um, wants to sell you this week. Um, that's a part of the narrative, but it is also what are the ideas that just naturally spread on their own? And so, you know, Black Lives Matter is a good example of that. And you're saying, hey, if there was some really good ideas or concepts around the Iraq war, Uh, And how maybe we should have thought a little bit differently about it, that in an environment today, those might have spread and those might have become a part of the mainstream conversation in a way that they had no avenue to at the time, right?
0: Yeah, like the thought leadership that like, hey, they didn't have these WMDs, like, where could you get that information? And I just feel like today, with social, like, you you get the other point of view right away. You know, like every time there's a discussion around like whether the police are conducting themselves properly, like you get the other point of view right away. And, and I think that, um, that level of transparency is, is the unique thing that we're going to see that with TV. Yeah. It was radically awesome and important. But when you went from five channels to 50 channels, I think it's, it's a small. Uh, improvement versus what we have now with, you know, billions of people connected uh, on mobile. I, I just feel like it's it just, it's it's hard to even compare. Yep.
1: Uh, yeah. We seem to be on the same page here.
0: Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. We're just convincing each other of what we both believe. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so one thing I want to ask you is you, uh, we didn't get a chance to really talk about this, but you went to the uh, upfront summit last week.
1: I, I don't think I've been to a conference quite like it. And so for those who haven't, uh, who don't know, this is, uh, you know, VC firm upfront down in LA uh, runs a it's a three-day event uh, where they have an LP meeting for a day that's closed. I'm not an LP in upfront, so I wasn't there. Uh, the next day is um, LPs and VCs, kind of the call it the ecosystem around upfront, people they invest with and work with. And then the third day is their tech summit, where they have a bunch of founders and entrepreneurs. The mayor of LA comes by, a bunch of speakers, and so on and so forth. And so it it was a very interesting mix of people in a very different context that I'm used to. I haven't been in a conference where there are a whole bunch of peers in the industry, VCs, in the same room with LPs um, and entrepreneurs all at the same time. So there's like our, you know, we had our annual meeting just a couple weeks ago, and that was like, us and our LPs and a handful of our entrepreneurs as well. And now everyone got to mingle, but it's not like a larger ecosystem with a VC community was there. Um, so it may be... But LP is just for people,
0: to, it's limited partners. It's, it's the uh, firms or, or, or... It's our investors. Or, it's our
1: investors, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so I just, there were a lot of hallway conversations and side conversations, not to mention the conversations that were happening up on the stage um, that were that were very different. And, and, and what was very interesting was the lps were surprised, like were largely positive and the vcs were the ones who were dour and what? uh yeah <laughs> so
0: lps were saying hey we believe in in venture and tech investing and the vcs were saying uh not so sure
1: uh well uh, the, the best example of this is uh you know, Dan Dan Primack um, had a, had a handful of LPs up there on the on the uh, the reporter. Dan Primack had a bunch of LPs up there that he was interviewing, and the actual conversation with the LPs is off the record, so I won't go into who which LP said what or whatever. But um, but you know, it's, it's Dan's job to, to poke uh, at the industry and, and find holes and so on. And so you know, he would ask prodding questions like, uh, you know, why do you not just put all of your money uh, under the mattress? Uh, given you know the relative poor returns of VCS at a, as a whole because as we all know like most VCS don't actually make money at this job um, there's a relatively small number that are that are uh, that are responsible for the returns and it was uh, anyway the dialogue was very interesting because the LPS yeah were largely maybe these were just good LPS they're they're in good VCS and so they're feeling they're feeling could have pretty good about things but very level-headed just very much like look you know we 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 believe in this market in the long term and in the short term. um, You know, we see the returns that we want to see. uh, And and some a little bit of like, and where else would we put our money? Like, yeah, (laughs) yeah. so that, yeah, the LPs felt very calm. You know, it's not at all. And some of these people also make side private equity investments. Some of these people are doing some of these one, two, three billion dollar rounds. And they were far from panicking. The prices that we saw two years ago are not the prices we're going to see for companies today, that things are going to soften a little bit. Um, but no one felt, even the folks who were spending those checks on those higher valuations, I, I didn't hear anyone, you know, any of the LPs and, and private equity later stage folks really, really doubt. They were all seemingly relatively positive. They felt like there were a lot of real companies being built out there. Um, maybe some valuations were going to change a little bit, but that, you know, all was not lost and there, there was this was not a, uh, you know, the king with no clothes. Hmm. That's fascinating. Whereas there were some VCs who were like, oh, no, what's going to happen to my companies? You know, that there's going to be a bloodbath at the at the B round. I heard much more, much more of
0: that. That's fascinating. I mean, on, on one hand, you could chalk it up to, hey, LP has a longer term view. Maybe it's one version. Another, they have their own portfolio of GPs that they work with. Uh, maybe these were very good LPs. Like, I'm curious to, you know, I wasn't there, so, but I'm, I'm curious. You know, I guess the, the surprise here is that generally you have... GPs that are the more optimistic one. It's of like, course. you know, founders are the most optimistic. Yeah. GPs are second, you know, and 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 LPs are, are more measured about these things. So it's fascinating that you 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 observe the the reverse.
1: Uh, the reverse all the way down by the way. I have had <laughs> I had so we, you know, LPs were generally pretty upbeat. The GPs were reserved and a little worried, and then I had several conversations with CEOs who were like oh my god i better raise money right now because in eight months like no one's giving money to anybody it's all going crap like my company's okay you know uh, they're still optimistic about themselves let's be clear but <laughs> but uh but nervous about really nervous about the markets and um and that's something i don't i, I like i don't know if you've had this Bijan, but I, you know i've definitely had several conversations with ceos where i've just been trying to talk them down from doing anything too rash like i still i still believe i don't know if you like that look, good companies are going to get funded and, and the best companies are going to get funded in any environment. And so you should still optimize for trying to be the best company and don't like do cockamamie rounds um, that are rash just to get rounds done right now. And I don't think that's universal advice, by the way, I think there are other VCs giving different advice. Um, but I, I just, I don't, I, I think if you're having an amazing product and you have some you know product differentiation, there's a big market opportunity like I don't I don't think those companies are gonna stop getting funded in six months.
0: Yeah, I, I as you expect, I totally agree. I, I think the only thing that is you know, maybe I feel compelled to point out is that most companies over the course of time for their life, um don't do well. Statistically, I mean it sounds a little cold, but yeah. you know, like like uh you know, most startups don't, you know, Go public and become massive companies, or get bought out for big numbers. I mean, this is a this is a business where everyone goes in eyes wide open. That that we're in the outliers, you know. And so, if you find yourselves in the majority, which is you are not killing it, you're you're grinding it out, you're figuring it out. I think in that case, you you need to be really mindful of, you know, how much money you're spending, and you know, really, do you feel like you've got you know real you know traction in the market before you start thinking about like, you know, hitting the gas pedal. I mean, I just think those are hard. The, the 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 20 or 30% of our portfolio that happens to be killing it right now. Like they're, they're good. Like they kind yeah. of define gravity, but for the most of them, like, I think that, you know, some good um, self-reflection is, is, and being sober is, not the worst idea.
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, it, it's hard to counsel against irrationality. <laughs> 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 but, and I will say I'm having, I am having more conversations about, um, raising somewhat smaller rounds than I would have targeted a year ago. If, they're, yeah. if they are at the point of going out raising or being more, fle- a little bit more flexible in valuation, even if they're doing quite well. But I think that's, that's very different. Like, you know, in the fullness of time, a company is going to be the company it's going to be right. Yeah. And and so the like, did you raise at 10% more or 10%? Like, it kind of goes back to our valuation optimization conversation beforehand, yeah. Right. Like it's less important to me. Did you raise a couple more million dollars or a couple less million dollars? I, I You know, 10% higher, 10% lower on valuation. I would much rather a really good partner, you know, uh, the right amount of money, the right fact, like, just be rational about it, get the capital in, keep building the business, go out and do that again, you know, a year to 18 months and like, just keep taking the step approach. Um, Than the you know gargantuan monster round because you think you know you can get away with it
0: this month. So I we didn't ask we didn't talk about this, but I got a question. We could we could take it on or defer to it next time. But the one thing I saw about upfront was before the conference started, Fred Wilson posted a video that upfront produced where they asked a bunch of VCs, Fred, Mark Andreessen, others, like, "Hey, w- what's what's changing the world? Like, what what do you deserve? And I, I think Fred says something about AI mm-hmm. and. Andres said something about said globalization, and then Vinod,
1: Vinod had the best response.
0: <laughs> and, and Vinod said, uh, "You know, I have no idea. The VCs that say they know what they're talking about don't. You know, it was classic Vinod, right? Yeah. Classic. Uh, anybody, anybody
1: who says they know what's happening in the future is stupid, or something along those lines, or yeah, yeah like
0: you should worry about them the most, or some very yeah. provocative thing. So, what was your what was your takeaway on that? Forget the drama with Vinod's comment. Like, yeah. just uh are we at a point now where?" Predicting things is is the right compass as an early stage investor.
1: <laughs> I, I, this is an interesting way where probably Spark differs from a lot of firms. I think a lot of firms it is their business to prognostic. Like there's a lot of thesis-based firms. Um, that USV is a thesis-based approach. They have you can read about it on their website, they have four or five different areas of interest that they're investing in right now, overall market views, and the node's provocative uh comment aside uh they've done pretty pretty well with that thesis based approach amazing amazing well yeah amazingly well and uh, you know we have never had that approach. I might have one given thesis about about the way I think things are panning out, but um we've but much more of kind of like I'd phrase it like trying to keep a beginner's mind like trying to not close off doors so you're not ready I mean you know when you know when you know, Sato brought in Oculus to present. I don't know how you, like, I don't know how you were prepared for Oculus before they showed up the day before, right? Like, I don't know how you were ready for that until you actually saw the product experience. And in fact, I can think of a thousand theses about hardware investing or anything that would like actually talk to you out of doing that investment. And, um, I, you know, there's many there's there's many ways. I, I, like, I like our way, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah. to a certain extent, it's, it is our job though, to pragmat. like, I don't know if you'd care to say it way. I, I I've always described it to founders as we form those theses with the founder when they come in to talk to us. It's, it's hearing their view of the future and then seeing if it resonates with us versus, um, having some predetermined view of, of how it's supposed to be and then having the founder's vision fit or not.
0: Yeah. I think that's good. I mean, I, I guess the, the part that I found, you know, great about Vinod's thing was this, you know, unbelievable honesty. I think the, um, but I did find myself kind of having this gradual thing where I went from like laughing and agreeing to like, I, I think that we are, uh, more opinionated and, and thoughtful about this. We get it wrong a lot, but sure. when we're right, we're really right. And, um, so I, I don't know. I, I, and again, I think each firm and each partner has a different kind of take on all this stuff. But, uh, I, I actually found myself kind of first laughing with the note and then kind of, it's, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit cynical at the end of it. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So oh, la- lastly, uh, we were going to talk about, and it's, it's, it's this related subject, which, you know, Andy Brumman, our friend Andy ah. has a VC firm and he had a great announcement today. Uh, that um, we haven't talked to him directly about book, but maybe on a future podcast. Um, um, they're building software internally, right? At, the, at his VC firm.
0: Right. Yeah. He's, he's doing a whole bunch of stuff around artificial intelligence uh, at the firm. And, and you know, he, he wants to um, make this available to companies that they back. This, these types of technologies. Um, and, and AI, you know, maybe it's AI today and, and tomorrow they'll, they'll expand the portfolio of technologies. But, but this is what they talked about today around robotics and, and artificial intelligence.
1: We, we have not talked about this ahead of time, but, um, and, and I don't know why, because we should, but, uh, it's, I think this is where all VC is in in 10 years. Um, what, What do you mean by that? Well, okay. So if you think about what, what, where, where, how Andy got to this point, um, what what he, you know what you're trying to talk about is you know he's going to make a lot of next generation investments and i think you know there's two ways of doing that one is it's corporate r&d we've seen that model um, there's a bunch of reasons why new technology inside of corporate r&d has a problem getting to market uh, and so that's probably not the best model the second model which is the model we're in right now is hey once those tools become commoditized enough then a new startup can take advantage of them. That's the internet, that's, you know, uh, Python, yeah. that's whatever new technology, then everybody takes advantage of it and you use that new technology or new tool as a new accelerant to get ahead. And this feels like a third model, which is a VC saying, hey, there's a piece of software, There's a, there's a piece of innovation that any one startup couldn't build on their own without it being too cost-effective. But across a handful of portfolio companies, is easily worth the capital spend to make. Well, like maybe is Blade an example? Um, well, you, why don't you characterize Blade for a sec? And then I mean, because, well, how, how do you feel like they're using software?
0: Uh, sorry, they're not using software, but they're bringing another level of expertise along with just capital, right? Around like hardware manufacturing, contract manufacturing, and, and hardware. Operations is like if you're a blade portfolio company, right. you probably decide to work with blade because of all this other extra services you get from them.
1: Yeah, we've seen this first and foremost, I think, in like hardware incubation companies, right. in like Lemnos Labs, and um, you know, uh, because they have internal costs that are too high. So that's an obvious one. I, I think those are great, good, like a lot of them. I think they're adding a lot of value. This feels of a different kind to me because I think those are relatively short-term benefits. Those mm. are benefits that are like, hey, it's the first year; it's a little expensive because I'm a hardware company. But hey, you have a, you have a lathe machine, and that's or a, you know the uh, fancy 3D printer, and that's going to accelerate me a little bit. And and or I don't want to trivialize it. You have some expertise and some relationships. That is great. 18 months later, does it really still help you? Um,
0: yeah. yeah. So here, here's my take. I totally. Um, think this is awesome what Andy's yeah. doing, but I totally disagree yeah. that this is the future of, of venture capital. Awesome. Like This is the future for playground. Like that team they have is, is, ex- is amazingly unique. Like Peter Barrett's a co-founder of playground. He, we worked together at web TV along yeah. with Andy. We're like, this is an extraordinary group of uh, human beings at playground that can do this. Um, and it's not clear whether they can even do it, but I, I'm betting I would bet, yeah. I, I would bet that they will. Yeah. Um, but I think, this is kind of like to me, like what what Mark and Ben are doing at AH with all that infrastructure. Like, it's going to work for them, but if everyone else tried to do it, like it would totally fail. Like, if we had two hundred people here, it would it would be an epic failure. You know what I mean? And I think I think a benchmark at two hundred people, it would it would take away with what makes benchmark benchmark. And so, like, I think if if Sequoia starts hiring AI people because they're trying to like kind of do this or forget, you know, like I, I just think it, it would be an epic fail. And then. The other side is, so that was the thing about like, not all firms can kind of just like clone this thing or right. whatever. But the other piece is that like, I don't think it gives startups enough credit. Like if you look at the most amazing, impactful startups, the last five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever, like I think the thing that makes them special is they figured out the awesome thing that they're going to deliver and, and, and the off the shelf stuff was incidental. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like it was, uh, like, the Instagram guys used AWS.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so that was the incidental part. And then they, they made the best experience for sharing photos. Like, I just feel like the, the um you got to put the expertise in the company. Like, you know, that's the, the thing. So if, if, if you build an awesome company that relies on AI and you get it from playground, then I, I think you're, you're building a company around the commodity layer of the stack. Like, you know, to the, if, if playground develops something magical at that layer, then all portfolio companies start with that. That then becomes table stakes, right? Yep. So your
1: company- You gotta do more. You gotta do way more. Oh, so, I completely agree. No, no, yeah. we, so, so we, I, I agree with you as our esteemed colleague, Jeremy, would say, I, I agree with you to a point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what, what's the point? What's, I mean, what's the, not the point, like what's the line where
0: you go from agreeing to disagreeing? Uh,
1: so the line I agree with is that ob- obviously like, you can't be utilizing some other third party uh, for your differentiation. Otherwise, why is it a separate startup? Uh, uh, Otherwise it's really more like a Procter and Gamble model and you could call them startups, but really they're just holding on subsidiaries of some larger thing. And that's where the leverage value is, is the technology only that playground is building or whoever the next thing is building. Um, So in that world, I, I agree with you. What I, but projecting forward a little bit, to be a little prov- provocative here, it, it's 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 more like I, I think there are companies that were created off the back of I'll use your AWS example. There are companies that were built off the off back of AWS, AWS that could not have been built four years earlier, hundred um, percent, right? And so when you create a new enabling technology, there are of course new startups that suddenly become possible that were impossible earlier. Does that but why, mean but that, why does it have to be part of the VC? Does, does that mean that Netflix or Zynga, uh, like? That's the only value they added was AWS, even though they utilized AWS and grew faster because of it? No. Like, of course, like they had other additional value which helped them grow and help become unique and valuable, long-lasting companies. Um, but AWS is an enabler. I'm not saying that it has to be part of the VC. What I'm saying is we have two prevailing models for how the table stakes, stakes get raised right now. And they are some enabling technology that's available to everybody, or it's inside of corporate R&D. And I think that what we will see is that if there is a new enabling technology that can be built inside of a, a venture capital firm or whatever that holding entity is, it is not one of those other two things, that that firm – and it's kind of necess- – like it's going to necessarily happen because I think we have more operating people becoming GPs. They're gonna, there's going to be more and more people that are going to look at their own background and expertise are going to believe that there's a piece of technology they can bring to bear and then they can leverage that for their portfolio. And then if you are a new AI startup that would love a good machine learning algorithm, and it turns out that XVC has that and the other VC does not like which one do you pick? And so, you know, that means the best machine learning startups go to that particular one because they have access to different code bases and they have access to software And just like if, you know, well, whatever, like, and so then you get ahead. Uh, So
0: so if Amazon had a venture capital firm and they only made AWS available to Amazon portfolio companies, is that kind of directionally what you're talking about? Uh,
1: I I think there's the corporate, that's still like, it's like, that's more like corporate R&D. So yes, although I think there's things about Amazon's overall strategic goals and stuff like that, that might mess up that model and implementation. That's what muddies the corporate R&D model generally. I think it will be very interesting to watch development, and I think we'll see how this will play out over the next couple of years with not just Andy, but to a certain extent YC is doing this too um, with a bunch of their um, research stuff that they're spinning up. Uh, I I think we'll see what that has an impact on the market, and I'm excited about it, frankly. I'm excited to have – another avenue. Is it the only way to build a startup? No. Will we'll there still be wonderful companies that don't leverage that technology? They get backed by other VCs that don't have it? Yes, of
0: course. Yeah, yeah. That we're, we're saying the same thing, but I, you, you made the comment – you put a stick in the grass that this is what it's going to be like 10 years from or whatever the time yeah, is.
1: Yeah, I, I think I, it's the way it weigh a lot – I think but, it's the next but generation But you're now saying
0: that it's not how all of them are going to be. So that's no. the part I uh,
1: – you're right. No, no, no. I, yeah, I don't, I don't think that those will – destroy all of the vcs as we know it um the same way that fm radio still exists (laughs) all right well unfortunately we gotta
0: both roll but this is great i'm glad we disagreed on this because like i I think uh it's it's fantastic i think it's it's great because we're 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 usually so in sync that it's uh it may 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 not make for the best podcast
1: (laughs) yeah yeah we'll pick up on this topic in the future perhaps
0: all right awesome
1: uh, hey, thanks everybody. Look, uh, it was great having a couple questions this time to riff on. Um, if you want to hear us talk about anything, obviously we're we're happy to hear your comments. Um, and we did not get a guest this time because of scheduling conflicts, even though we said we would. We're, we're working on. We were actually just prior to this podcast working on on uh, scheduling for for our next guest coming next coming up next. So see you soon. All right, see ya. Bye bye.